liberation theology then takes action as sort of its Christian action as sort of its primary focus, and theology is a, a second thing, which is we reflect on what we do. We are to act like Christ in the world, and then we reflect on that. Uh, and we find that their God is working and their God is providing grace and their God is revealing God's self to us in the midst of that action. Welcome to the Spirit is Lit podcast, a spirit-centered podcast. Join us each week for a conversation on faith, current events, and everything in between. Hello there, folks, and welcome to this week's episode of The Spirit is Lit. My name is Jacob DeRussia, and this week we have a wonderful guest again. His name is, uh, not again, he's, this is the first time on the episode, on the show, um, but we always have wonderful guests. His name is Zach, anyway, um, Zach Kronovich, and we, I had the privilege and opportunity of uh, studying with him at Boston College, um, and today we we dove deep into what this idea of liberation theology is, and particularly kind of what, I, what I'm taking from the conversation is uh, this concern and care for the poor and the marginalized, and how that... Uh, is uh, a lot of that uh, I see rooted in what we see in our Catholic social teaching. So I thought it was super cool to be able to break down the origins and the roots and kind of how it plays out. So enjoy. Zach, welcome to the Spirit is Lit podcast. It's so good to see you and it's so good to, to hear you. Um, welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. My pleasure. So Zach, just to, just to kick us off, uh, people might be wondering, like, who, who you know, who is Zach? Can you tell us a little bit about uh, maybe who you are, a bit about your story, um, and how, how you kind of landed up where you are right now? Absolutely, yeah. So I'm um, I'm a Hoosier, a proud Hoosier from rural West Central Indiana. I grew up there, went to public school uh, most of my, uh, I would say, later elementary through high school in a pretty rural community. Lots of agriculture, factory workers, um, pretty. Pretty uh, uh, regular little community there. Um, I went to college to be a priest. I, I entered seminary for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis when I uh, started college. And then not long after that, met the woman who would eventually become my wife. Um, and uh, so I finished degrees in theology philosophy. I taught high school. I did a little bit of grad work in Chicago. I came back home. We got married. Uh, I went to law school. I practiced law for a couple of years while I was doing uh, parish ministry, and uh, while I was, in, I was in law school, I was doing parish ministry, and then uh, I practiced law for a couple of years, and uh, had always wanted to get back into theology, and um, so I just kept harping my harping on my wife, and she finally said okay, and uh, before she could uh, take it back, I applied to a lot of different schools, and we ended up moving to Boston uh, about six months later, so I did a, an MTS uh, at the School of Theology and Ministry here at Boston College. And then immediately after that, came across the street to uh, the Morrissey College of Arts and Sciences, working on a PhD in systematic theology. So uh, I'm a Catholic uh, husband. My, my, my wife and I have been married for 11 years, and then we have two, two daughters. One is three and a half, and the other one just turned one about uh, two weeks ago. So. Nice. So I understand you couldn't get enough of Boston College, then you had to uh, continue to pursue a PhD. I just, um, I can't be a single eagle. I have to be like a double eagle at least. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you would have gone through, because what, isn't there, um, there's elementary school. Oh, that's like, that'd be like a triple or quadruple eagle, right? If you did. 
As hand. a matter of fact, my daughter attends St. Colin Kills, which is where uh, a lot of the, it's a feeder for, for students who will ultimately come to Boston College. So they just had an article uh, that BC published about that. Uh, so maybe she'll be a triple eagle. She'll get me beat, you know, so. <laughs> nice. So well, if anyone doesn't understand the, the, the terminology, like um, BC, their, their mascot is the eagle. So whatever, like, and they have uh, like St. Colin Kill, they have um, elementary, they have middle school and like all the way up. So however many of the BC um, kind of conglomerate, I guess you go to, yeah, that's how, how much of an eagle you are. But um, so in regards to that question, like um, I understand that you're, you're within your PhD, you're, you have a particular interest in what's called liberation theology. Um, can you kind of describe, you know, what that, what, what that term means, what liberation theology is, and I don't know, maybe just some of its like general ideas and maybe even like some of its origins? Yeah. So Liberation theology and it sort of belongs to a family of, um, uh, I guess, within the within the family of political theology, which is kind of how I frame what I do. When people ask me what I study, it's liberation and political theologies. It's certainly not a singular uh, body of work, but it is a um, it is a contextualized theology, meaning it's a theology that works within particular settings. So liberation theology. Uh, emerges out of Latin America in the Latin American context. And at that time, which is in this, this is in the you know, 50s and 60s, uh, into the late 60s, I would say, um, there's a lot of class warfare going on. We have, much like we have in our own country, we have very powerful uh, economic interests that override the vast majority of people in the country who, who suffer at the hands of those economies and, and the way that industry values profit over people and those sorts of things. This is exactly what's happening in Latin America at the time. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. And for some Christians, there's a sort of cognitive dissonance. There's a, there's a, a wrestling going on in their minds saying, wait a second, if, if we claim to be Christians, and a lot of these countries are, are, are predominantly Catholic countries in Latin America, at least at that time, uh, we say there's something that's not quite right here about the number of poor people who live in this country and who suffer in this country and the role of the church in this country with those who we would consider the powerful, the elites. Um, especially when we think about the way that Jesus operates in, in the scriptures. I mean, you think about the gospels, he accompanies the poor, he accompanies the marginalized. And we think about the saints in Catholic history, right? I mean, they're, they're on the margins, they're working with the poor uh, by and large. So in some ways, I mean, this is kind of what's happening in the U.S. context, as I mentioned. Uh, and so while the Catholic Church doesn't come about, uh, or excuse me, liberation theology doesn't come out of a, of a Catholic Church that has no social conscience, because it does, right? I mean, we have a long history of social encyclicals, which are documents that, that describe or that talk about the ways that, that Christians have a responsibility to the world and what we should be doing in response to industry or labor or whatever that might be. Um, so, you know, Rerum Navarum, which is, you know, we're talking centuries old here, uh, where the Industrial Revolution happens and the church has new challenges. So, so there's, a, there's a social conscience that exists historically in the church. And Vatican II, this, the Second Vatican Council in the, in the early and mid-60s, uh, comes out and, and makes an even greater push to say, you know, in Gaudium et Spes and Lumen Gentium, that the church can learn a lot from the world and has a responsibility to the world as well. We're in a relationship that's different than uh, sort of sort of setting ourselves apart and giving people an out. So after the Second Vatican Council, and in light of all that's going on in, in uh, Central and South America, the Latin American Bishops Conference, Salem, meets at Medellin in 1968. 
and offers this new vision that says we need to empower the people in a new way. We need to give a religious, uh, a religious uh, support to the movements of the people for their own human dignity. And so um, you think about, you know, for example, the, the challenge that they're bringing is, is kind of like what Jim Clyburn, Representative Clyburn says from, uh, from the Carolinas with regard to government. You know, the government should not be run as a business. The government is a service entity, right? And so what's, what's sort of lost in Latin, in, in Latin America at that time was that it was, a, it was all about business. And, and the church and the Latin American bishops are saying, we need to remember that government is a service and we have to recognize the dignity of all who are in this country. And so they gave uh, an affirmation to uh, the, the desires of the people to have their basic human needs met, the, their housing, security, food, education, and, uh, and wanted to do that through the, through the words of the church. So you think about you know, this line from James, this is, you know, if you say to them, go in peace, keep warm and, and well-fed, and yet you don't do anything to supply their bodily needs, like what good is that? You know, this is kind of where we begin to see the ways in which liberation theology begins to think. So Salem permits what they call ecclesial-based communities or, or um, uh, uh, base communities, it, it's, it's churches that are lay led. So the people gathered together with the approval of their pastor and they read scripture together and they celebrated that and they interpreted scripture together. And in light of one's own context, you can read scripture vastly differently in, in, in the 1960s Central America than you can in you know, the early 2000s, uh, you know, Indianapolis, Indiana, for example. Those are, those are different experiences. But in that context matters. So uh, we begin to see a more communal Christianity in, in, Latin, in, uh, in Latin America. We begin to see a, a greater focus on not me and my personal devotion, but us and our relationship to God and how it is that we can help one another in that way, in that relationship, um, in a way that we can, we can see salvation, the hints of salvation, the, the glimpses of the, of the kingdom of God, of the reign of God in the here and now. So um, you think about Matthew 25, Matthew 25, when he says, you know, you, um, uh, whatever you did for the, le whatever you did to the least of these, you did, you did to me, you know, but when were you hungry and I didn't feed you? When were you uh, thirsty and I didn't give you drink? Those sorts of things, right? Or when, or when did I give you food? Or when did I give you drink? That's kind of what's at the heart of all of this is that, you know, to, to believe in Jesus is to do like Jesus. Orthodoxy, the right belief is accompanied by something called orthopraxy, the right praxis, the, or, or you know, praxis is kind of like a greater, deeper understanding of what practice is, what you do. And so um, we, have to, we have to grapple with our greed. We have to recognize that what we consume causes the suffering of others. Our connections to others are, are, are very real, even if remote. So you think about workers who work in Amazon factories, or you work, think about uh, kids in sweatshops, you know, making the clothes that we wear here in the United States. We are connected. And this, this, this is a, a structural sin. This is the, the poverty of our lives, the structural sin that exists, and we have to do something to address that. So li liberation theology then takes action as sort of its, Christian action as sort of its primary focus, and theology is a, a second thing, which is we reflect on what we do. We are to act like Christ in the world, and then we reflect on that uh, and we find that their God is working and their God is providing grace and their God is revealing God's self to us in the midst of that action. So liberation theology uh, relies on a canon within the canon of scripture. So we look primarily at three things. You look at 
uh, starting from the, from the oldest, you look at the Exodus narrative, you know, when, when Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt and slavery, you look at the tradition of the prophets who, in the name of God, operate to greater degrees of critical distance from political leaders and challenge them for, for not following God's laws. And then we look at the work of, of uh, Jesus Christ in the Gospels, which is to the margin, to the poor, which has the political edge to it. So all three of those things sort of operate as the canon within the canon uh, of, of um, liberation theology and their interpretation of scripture. And that's what pushes us into a, sort of a politicized, and I don't mean that in, at all in a negative way, but a recognition that what we do theologically is indeed political. All theology is political, period. There's no, there's no escaping that. And by that, I mean to say that when we do, when we do theology, we are either maintaining the status quo or we're not. And we're either using uh, scriptures and theology to affirm what's been going on or we're challenging it. And I think in many ways, if you, if you were honest with the assessment of, of the Catholic Church in the United States, we see a lot of maintaining the status quo, trying to ensure that we're not ruffling feathers. And that's, a, and that's what liberation theology wants to challenge. No, we have poor people in the streets. We follow Christ. We have a, we have a mandate. We know what we're supposed to do. We have to challenge uh, what's going on. So it's social, it basically socializes and politicizes faith in a way that is not um, making it a tool or a weapon, but recognizing it for what it actually is, for what it actually is. So those are kind of some of the themes, I think, and kind of the origins of what uh, of liberation theology as it emerged in the 60s. Of course, it's had a lot of different iterations. I'll, I'll just say a, a few, just a few things. At the same time that it's emerging out of Latin or out of Latin America, uh, it's also emerging here in the United States in the Black community. Uh, James Cone is is sort of the father of Black liberation theology, in the way that Gustavo Gutierrez is the father of Latin American liberation theology. Of course, Latin American theology is is largely Catholic theology, uh, whereas James Cone is operating from a Protestant Christian uh, tradition. But um, but these things are emerging at the same time, as well as feminist theologies, as well as others. So context really matters. And um, at the same time that, that, you know, it's the 60s, it's tumultuous. Society is changing, culture is changing, and theology did the same thing. It, it realized it has a greater responsibility to the world. And that's what liberation theology is sort of putting into focus. Gotcha. So, I'm, I mean, you've touched on a little bit of kind of uh, scripture and like the interpretive lens that we use, um, uh, specifically uh, liberation theology, but also like touched on Black liberation, feminist theology, and all that. I'm wondering if, um, and, the, and from what I understand, there's intersection through all of these. But I'm wondering if, um, if are there any, you know, scripture passages that that stick out to you? Um, maybe popular scripture passages that that as you've studied uh, more and more of liberation theology, that you've uh, maybe grown fond of uh, interpreting through a liberation theology lens. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's sort of hard to um, to pluck scripture in some ways to say that it's 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 really transformed through a liberation theology lens. Liberation theology, I think, hardens the edge of it. So let's use the Exodus narrative one more time, and then we can we can look at almost anything that happens in the life of Jesus. But to say, you know, the Exodus narrative, for example, Moses is leading the Egyptians out of slavery. It is not Moses leading people just into a a right relationship with God. It's not just about the devotion of, of the Israelites. It's not just about their relationship with God. In a, it's about saying this structure of slavery of a people is wrong, and we are going to liberate you from that experience. 
And if you transform that, or your transition, or excuse me, transfer, that, that's, the, that's the, uh, the trans word I'm thinking. If you transfer that model onto almost anything else, it's the same idea, right? I mean, uh, we all have a relationship with God and it's all found within a particular political structure. For some, that means that their lives flourish, that they have a relationship that can continue to uh, be graced and in, in abundance uh, in their regular lives. I mean, for the most part, that looks like, you know, the middle class and above and all of that, who, who sort of operate in these worlds that, that, that they can have a normal relationship with God and flourish in, in, in sort of all aspects of their lives. But then there are, there's the majority of the population, not just in the United States, but in the world, the majority of the world don't have that ability for human for full human flourishing. And so to so the Exodus narrative, you know, you think about ways that that can be made into sort of a spiritualized narrative to say, well, we're leading people out of um, the inability to be in a relationship with God. We're leading people out of a, of a, of a bad situation. We're taking people out of sin, for example. You know, it's another way of another way of putting that. Liberation theology says, well, that's not exactly it. We're taking people out of bad, oppressive socio-political structures. And that's what God's calling us to do. In the same way that God called Moses to, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, God is calling us to lead those who are oppressed or enslaved in the modern day out of their own socio-political uh, uh, oppressions, whatever that might be, um, whether that's hunger or economic exploitation or, uh, you know, uh, just generalized poverty, whatever that might be, you know, that's, that's what liberation theology is doing. And that's the, that's sort of the lens. It's, it's how, how is this affecting the poor? What does this mean with regard to the poor and, and to society? Because those things are intricately related. I mean, what does, what does God mean to someone who can't eat, who hasn't eaten, right? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, you can't really process God's grace without having your stomach at least full to some degree. Gotcha. And does that come from and maybe how, how we carried that out, do you think, since, um, from what I understand, the, you know, the inception of liberation theology happened from within these small communities living in, like, lower income, lower resources, and how has that stemmed from where it is today? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, um, there's some conversations about the role of liberation theology. In the, I mean, it, it hasn't really gotten a great reception in the church, historically speaking. It's never been condemned officially by any means. It's never, you know, the, the church has never said like this is wrong. But ultimately, these um, some of the issues that are raised is that uh, liberation theology uses a Marxist analysis in evaluating the you know, the social situation. So a lot of ha has to do with class and economics, and and Marx is, I think, pretty close to right on that, um, in saying that you know we have uh, we have sort of a superstructure that includes religion that works to uphold the status quo so that the rich keep getting richer, right? And, and, um, and I mean, I, we think, about, think about Jeff Bezos in, in the pandemic, right? I mean, how much money he's made since we've all been tucked away and the, and the conditions of his workers and all that. Um, I think as, as, as liberation theology has aged, you know, it went through John Paul II, who, through his own experience of commun communism in Poland, was very hesitant and very resistant to any mentioning of Marxism. Then you have Benedict XVI, who, you know, was a professor during the time of these student uprisings and, and was also very hesitant to have any sort of major social revolution. Um, and then you get somebody like Francis, however, who lived with the poor, who has experienced, who have, who has experienced the poor in a different way. And uh, I think recognizes our responsibility to the poor. 
you know, in the United States, we have a lot of programs in theology, for example, at, at, at institutions of higher education that study liberation theology extensively. Um, but as far as incorporating it into the church, kind of as it is, the church really hasn't done that on a parish level in the same way. We, we seem to be more okay with having a conversation about black liberation theology because that's something that kind of operates external to us. It came from, you know, it came from something that wasn't Catholic. It came from a theologian who wasn't Catholic. Whereas, you know, liberation theology is a, is a criticism of the Catholic church just as much as the Christian body, you know, uh, uh, more broadly understood. So uh, it still has its struggles. It's still resisted in many ways, but uh, it's beginning, I think we're beginning to see it become more mainstream. That's awesome. If I might add one more component to that, I mean, if you think about what you read in an introduction to theology class, whether you're in high school or in college, uh, it's not often that you're reading Gustavo Gutierrez or, or John Sabrino or others, right? You read Augustine and you read Aquinas and you read, you know, uh, Julian of Norwich or whatever, right? Uh, or Scott Hahn, or you know, apologists and things like that. We're we're not we're not mainstreaming it in theology either, really. So gotcha. There's there's work to be done. Yeah, no, no, no. That makes sense. Um, you mentioned um, kind of the, the lineage of the papacy in terms of like the I guess the right or you know as um, liberation theology is kind of spread. I'm wondering, um, and at, at the end you mentioned Pope Francis, our current pope. Um, I'm wondering if you see uh, how you see him. Because uh, you mentioned his, his, uh, he's a, a bit more, or maybe less apprehensive to liberation theology. Maybe that's rooted in his, you know, um, experience in uh, being in Latin America and living amongst the poor. But I'm wondering if, um, how do you see that within his papacy, and where do you see that being played out? Yeah, I mean, it's not only that he lived among the poor, but he was also a Jesuit among the poor. You know, and the Jesuits were really sort of the primary um, advocates for this new way of thinking about theology at that time, especially in, in Latin America. But you know, I think it would be hard to ignore the influence of, of at least the themes of liberation theology on Pope Francis if, um, I, I mean, I, I think he still doesn't quite explicitly say, you know, I'm a liberationist. I mean, I'm not sure any pope would really do that, uh, at least for a good while. But I, I think it's hard to, to miss that, you know, his, his care and concern for the, dig the dignity of human beings which implies the expense of the socioeconomic situations that we find ourselves in, I mean, lends itself to an obvious um, influence of liberation theology. I mean, think I, I was thinking about this, uh, uh, this list of New Year's resolutions that the Pope uh, made, right? That it circulated on social media. And just, just a few of them, you know, finish your meals. I mean, why would you do that? It's about waste. It's about ensuring that we're not being greedy and we're not wasting that that could be used to feed others. Choose the more humble purchase, right? Again, how do we how are we utilizing our our property? How are we utilizing our, our finances to benefit others? And the other one is uh, meet the poor in the flesh. And I think this last component, this last resolution of his, is I mean, it's it's all over his papacy, right? I mean, you have the, he's celebrating his birthday with the poor, visiting uh, the imprisoned and, and uh, the impoverished on Holy Thursday to wash their feet. Um, you know, and, and uh, taking in refugees at the Vatican. I mean, you name it, he's done it because it's it's a care and concern that is real and lived. And it's not something about, you know, we're not throwing money at a problem. We're meeting people as they are in the flesh, befriending them, uh, which, which makes it different. Um, I think often too about 
that uh, Orbi at Orbi that he did during the pandemic. A super powerful uh, a little presentation. It's not a presentation, but a ritual, I guess you'd say, um, in, in St. Peter's Square. And what he's what was he saying there? You know, we recognize our interconnectedness here. We recognize that that um, that we are all impoverished in some way, and unless and until we recognize what this pandemic has revealed, we will continue to see suffering in our world. And then you have, you know, you go on into other writings of his and other speeches and other things that he, other talks that he's giving. And he's saying the same thing over and over again. We have to rethink the way that we live with one another. We have to rethink what it means to be a government, what it means to be a society, what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ, what it means to be friends of the world. Um, uh, it's a challenge. I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a liberationist challenge. You know, we're not trying to develop people. We're not trying to make money to, so that, you know, trickle down. We're talking about restructuring so that the poor are lifted up. And that's, uh, that is certainly the influence of, uh, it's, it's, it's either the influence of liberation theology or the same influences that liberation theology had also. So it's coming from one of those sources, maybe both. Right. Um, and of course, Francis, you know, he and, and, uh, Cardinal Muller and uh, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez had a, had a nice uh, meal at one point in time too. So, I mean, I think I think he sees liberation theology as a as a positive in the church too. So, gotcha. That makes sense. So, you I mean, you mentioned um, uh, speaking about his papers. You mentioned obviously uh, Pope Francis's writings. Um, one of his most recent ones, uh, the Encyclical Fratelli Tutti. Our, our young adults actually, we did like a. A study group uh, on it. We read a chapter a week. So I'm wondering if you see um, how much liberation theology you see within that that encyclical. Yeah, I mean, I think for those of you who've read it, I mean, you, you'll hear in even what I've said so far that there are, there are resonances there, right? Um, you think about the, the you know the, the core of the core of Fratelli Tutti, sort of the lens, the theological lens of Fratelli Tutti is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And the Good Samaritan is a story about the relationship between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? What you believe has, has uh, uh, an effect on what you do or should have an effect on what you do. And so uh, this as setting up the challenge is sort of lifting up this relationship between what it is that you believe and what it is that you do, that, that action is just as important as faith and belief. Um, this conception of, of uh, the responsibility that's connected to our, our fraternity, right? Our brotherhood is based on a responsibility. Um, our poverty is a, is a recognition, and then we can talk about poverty in a little bit, but our poverty here is a recognition of our need for one another. And as a result, we have a common bond and the capacity to be, to, to be brothers and sisters in Christ, but we haven't quite enacted that. And now we have to find a way of enacting that. We can't just wait for God to intervene. Um, you know, that's, I think that sort of, it's not quite fatalism, but it's a, it's a, uh, uh, just an over-reliance on the work of God. You I mean, you think, you know, fast forward, uh, you know, in the church's history to somebody like Martin Luther King, who says, the way that God works in the world is through us, right? We're either complying with the, with the internal law of God that's written on our hearts, or we're not. And therefore, God is working or not working based on whether we're abiding by that law, or we're not abiding by that law. So, um, we have a challenge in in the in the encyclical uh, that recognizes that it's our it's our work too. It's not just God, even if God empowers us to do that. And then, I mean, think also about the way that he talks about private property. You know, private property is secondary to human dignity, uh, 
and that we must uphold the, the good of all and the dignity of all before we begin enjoying the things that we can enjoy in addition to that. So, you know, these are obvious themes of liberation theology that are emerging in Fratelli Tutti that are, um, that are, that are playing a pretty central uh, place. But I, but I want to say one more time, I mean, this is not, a lot of these things are not necessarily new to Francis, right? I mean, um, not long ago, the Boise Center for Religion and American Public Life here at Boston College, we hosted a webinar on Fratelli Tutti and had uh, some scholars. And I think, um, I think it was Ma uh, Massimo Fagioli, who's an ecclesiologist and one of the, one of the foremost specialists on, on the papacy uh, and, and Francis's papacy in particular. And he said, look, you know, Francis didn't say anything new. What makes, what makes something jarring is the context. That Francis said it now makes it, makes it different. Nothing that he said about private property, about our, our universal dignity, or, or any, anything about the need to, to, do, to enact our faith, none of that's new. Francis or uh, Benedict would have said it, John Paul would have said it, John Paul before him would have said it, but it's that he said it now that it really makes a difference. Um, Does it make a difference to the fact that um, this is, from you know what I understand is this like this maybe the the highest limelight I guess something like a document or like something that like a pope could does the fact that it's an encyclical make a difference I guess maybe is my question yeah I mean uh, social encyclicals always sort of play a particular role I mean you know I think Fratelli Tutti is going to be read for a long long time you know and Laudato Si has gotten a lot of press but I think Laudato Si is going to gradually sort of fizzle and fade. Um, but then you think about like Evangelii Gaudium and, and others that, you know, they just kind of, you know, they, they hit, we, we, we hear what he, he has to say and then we move on. But Fratelli Tutti's got a, sort of a lasting impact. And I think, I think you're right. But it's, it's, but it's part of that larger social encyclical tradition, you know, where, where those arguments are being made in, in sort of the highest ways, like you say, the, 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 from, the, from the peak of papal teaching, right? So, yeah. So you, I want to talk about um, you. You've mentioned this quite a bit, and then uh, you know we're, we're, we've seen it like in the throughout Fratelli Tutti, and just you know talking a lot about poverty, and um, and we see it throughout Fratelli Tutti. You've mentioned a lot that that there's, I think, um, from what I what I'm understanding, there's different way that you know ways that poverty manifests itself. I'm wondering um, if you could, if you would mind elaborating on maybe some of those different ones. I mean, like. Uh, for instance, you know, Pope Francis talks a little bit about, uh, you know, racial injustices and poverty, gender and like language and all that. Uh, I don't know. I wonder if if, uh, if you wouldn't mind elaborating on that, how they yeah. manifest. I'll abstract. I'll make them abstract in, in, in one way, kind of kind of go one level above that the race, uh, go one level beneath poverty in general, one level above sort of race, gender, class. But that'll it'll ultimately fade into that. But. I mean, there are basically three types of poverty that I think are, are sort of the three central types that we talk about when we talk about poverty in the church. We have uh, material poverty. So we talk about the poor. We talk about uh, things that almost things that can be calculated, right? That I have access or I don't have access to these particular features of my society or my culture. I have access or I don't have access to food or to clothing or to shelter or to security, right? Um, I don't have money, right? These are these are these are sort of material uh, poverties. Um, those can come in, you know, lots of different forms, and they can affect folks in lots of different ways that I think flow into these uh, these issues. For example, of of racism and, and others. So, for example, one of the things I was thinking about is um, educational poverty. For example, 
it, you know, the poverty of education runs rampant, particularly in this country. Uh, the lack of critical thinking available or taught in schools, uh, the poor funding of institutions, either in inner cities or in, in rural areas of this country. Um, as such, bad information spreads all over the place. Then you have somebody like Paulo Freire who's coming in and saying, look, we've got to think about uh, um, how it is that we teach people about where they are, how we teach people to think critically about their situation, and um, uh, basically unveil for them the fact that by and large, many people are economically exploited, politically manipulated, educationally oppressed, um, and it's material. I mean, educational oppression is material. It keeps people poor. It keeps the rich rich. It, it, you, these are these are ways in which you can quantify uh, the particular lack of um, uh, material goods uh, in a particular way. Um, for example, I mean, you think about the ways in which uh, critical thinking could unveil a narrative that actually the working, the poor in the working class, white communities and black communities have more in common than white communities of poverty and white elite communities, right? So it's, it's where we find our abilities to be in solidarity with one another and how it is that we act, on, act upon that solidarity. Um, another type of poverty, uh, sort of broader category, sort of uh, focusing back out again, going more broadly, is spiritual poverty. And spiritual poverty can kind of take a lot of different forms. The poverty that I'm referring to, uh, have been referring to mostly in, in, in our conversation so far, has been the spiritual poverty. And Johann Baptist Metz, who's a political theologian, sort of one of the earliest political, the explicit political theologians uh, by his own um, admission, um, is Johann Baptist Metz, who uh, is, a, is, a, is sort of the theologian who, who first thought about doing theology after Auschwitz. How do we deal with human suffering? How do we deal with what's going on? And he, he talks a lot about poverty and the recognition that, that this poverty means that we are completely reliant on other things, whether that's other people or God. And, uh, you know, we don't raise ourselves. In order for us to be adults, we have to have been cared for as children. Um, you know, unlike certain animals who, you know, kind of come out of the womb and they're ready to roll, uh, we are not like that. We require a lot of help. And so if, if we lose sight of this poverty and this interconnectedness, um, we are we are fooling ourselves. We are living sort of outside what we how we ought to be living. So this is what Fratelli Tutti argues, right? We have to recognize our interconnectedness. And then finally, there's this there's voluntary poverty, which is probably the most obvious that we take this on as a, as a as an act of solidarity with the poor. So you know, you think about folks who join Catholic worker you know houses or something like that, where they they uh, abandon their goods and they go and live in poverty so they could be in solidarity with the poor. So. That's that's the poverty that I think, at least in broad categories, um, liberation theology is seeking to address in, in in many different ways. Either bolstering voluntary poverty by affirming the you know by affirming that it's a good thing that people do that, or uh, speaking against material poverties and the, and the many different things that that keep that poverty in place. So Zach, I think you've touched on. I mean, I think we've touched on this uh, already a little bit, but I'm wondering. And this is like this is a this is not a question that could be answered within the context of like a one, you know, 30 second minute uh, answer, but um, I'm wondering- As if any uh, of my answers have been one minute or 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're good, they're good, I'm enjoying it. Uh, but uh, here's my question, I think, uh, so uh, is there a root cause to this poverty? And, uh, you know, uh, what would liberation theology say is, is the solution? So I think, um, for as far as root cause, I think it depends on what the poverty is we're talking about. Um, I think liberation theology ultimately is going to see greed as the, as a central poverty cause, as the as sort of a root of that. Um, but then I think you you know 
I guess you could say greed. I guess you could say pride. I mean, there are a lot of different ways that you could argue that that, that poverty emerges. So I hesitate to say that there's one root cause, but I think liberation theology is more interested in finding the finding a way of addressing the issue and how do we solve the poverty. And going back to MLK, I mean, I think a lot of people a lot of people have quoted, at least in my experience, a lot of people have quoted or misquoted King. And they say, you know, King was more concerned about changing hearts, changing consciences, you know, that it's, it's going to take a conversion for people to, to um, uh, sort of eradicate racism in their midst. But King was also very clear that like policy change also matters just as much, right? I mean, I mean, you think about what, you know, the Civil Rights Act and, and the outlawing of discrimination in this country did to eradicate racism or, or at least explicit racism and prejudices and discrimination in the country. Um, it didn't necessarily change overnight, but like as time goes on and you begin to see, you know, uh, people of color and, and, and white people merging in the same areas, those separations mean less and less and it change, it shifts the imagination, right? That we can do this differently than we've done it before. I can see a new way of being in community. And so I think liberation theology is also similarly concerned. We're ultimately concerned about changing society, changing the social structures that keep these things in place that oppress people. And we're also concerned about ensuring that people are in right relationship with God. So it's calling everyone, the poor and the rich, as uh, into a right relationship with God so that the poor know that God is with them, that, that they are sort of a primary conduit for our experience of grace. You know, as John Sabrino said, you know, there's no salvation outside the poor, right? I mean, they are how we are saved by what we do for them. This is kind of a Matthew 25 thing all over again. But then it's also calling the rich uh, into right relationship with God to recognize that um, we are that we're all connected and that they have a responsibility to the least among them as well. So it's an it's an it's a it's a it's a criticism and it's an empowerment um, that works at the heart level and at the institutional sociopolitical level. Do you see, um, it's this kind of reminding me, but I think it's a little bit different. Do you see, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, uh, how familiar you are with it, but um, one of the things uh, that that, I, that at least I understand within the Catholic social teaching is there's the, I think it's called the two, two feet in, I think. One foot is the foot of charity and the other foot is the foot of justice. Um, are, does, that, does that ring a bell to you? Yeah, uh, um, what do they call that? A direct action and indirect action or something like that, right? Where you you work at a food kitchen and you also work for policies that change. Yeah. Does that, does that kind of uh, entangle with kind of what you're saying a little bit? That's precisely it. Absolutely. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. So uh, with that being said, um, my understanding is uh, kind of what we're talking about is uh, this preferential op option for the, the poor um, is rooted in, in liberation theology. Um, can you kind of under, uh, describe a little bit what that term means? I know we've been talking a little bit about it already. Um, and, you know, maybe give an example, uh, make it a little bit more, I guess, uh, explicit. Yeah. So, I mean, you think about, you think about, um, we go back to earlier examples I was talking about. So you think about uh, uh, kids who work in sweatshops making clothes for, for those of us who buy them from Amazon, for example. So we're compounding problems here. Um, you have uh, a connection to everyone. In some way, it's kind of like the you know this Bobby Kennedy ripple effect sort of thing, right? You, th you throw the stone in, and it's it's affecting a lot of stuff. Um, you know, the preferential option for the poor is is basically a question or a concept or a concern that says what are what are what is what we're doing 
doing to the poor? How is our policy decision, how is my personal purchasing decisions affecting and influencing the realities of the poor? So, you know, one of the one of the central, uh, um, I think, uh, uh, issues that are that's foregrounded in the church now is climate change. And, you know, Laudato Si is very clear. The people who will suffer the most as a result of climate change are the poor, period. And we have an obligation to ensure that our policies affect the poor positively, right? What is this doing to the poor or for the poor? How is it changing the, the, the situation of poverty? Um, and that's what the preferential option really is, that we need to sort of start there and work our way in. Natalia Imperatori Lee, um, a theologian from uh, uh, um, the name of the college escapes me. It's in it's in uh, New York City, but they, uh, you know, she she's a, uh, a theologian who was talking a little bit about how think about how wounds heal. You know, wounds don't heal from the middle in from the middle out. Wounds heal from the margins inward, right? And that's what the idea is behind the preferential option for the poor. We start on the margins and then we work our way back in, uh, and and. So it's a concept that really uh, it plays front and center in, in what we're encouraging the church to do, what we're encouraging society and politics to do, and what we as on a personal level ought to be thinking about too. How, are my, how am I influencing or impacting the poor in a positive or negative way? One thing that's sticking out to me that I'm really curious, I wanna kind of get your opinion on, um, how do you see uh, as we, uh, at least the way I, I had understood it when I asked that question, um, the two feet in, some people, I think, at least from my experience, might be better at the charity and some people might be better at the justice. But how do you see those two, uh, like maybe I, I say people like one person's strictly one thing and one person strictly the other, but how do you see them working together um, so that, you know, one person can maybe be attuned to the other? I don't, yeah. How do you see those two people working together? Um, you know, this is a, I think this is a task for the church in many ways. I mean, we have to better catechize. We have to better, you know, inform people of how these systems work and change. Uh, that's one component. I think we need to rethink what community looks like. I mean, this is the call of Fratelli Tutti, right? Or this is the call of King. This is the call of everyone, right? We, we live in proximity to one another, but do we really know one another? You know, we are connected on social media to one another, but are we really friends with one another, right? Um, I think, I think it would be silly to say that everyone has the responsibility of being both feet, right, or, or having both models. You know, this is sort of the, you know, we're many parts, all one body. You know, we, we all work together to do, uh, to do the ultimate task or to, to reach the same goal. Um, but I think it requires um, a, a rethinking of the way that we do church and we do community. And, um, uh, you know, there's probably more for me to think on on that level, but but I think it really has to start in a community setting. We got to put down our phones and we have to meet people in the flesh, right? We have to meet people in the flesh. So what can um, churches do to better live out these ideals of the preferential option for the poor and just, you know, liberation theology and caring for and concern for others? Yeah. So um, when I was in Indianapolis, I belonged to a parish that, uh, that basically operate the parish boundaries were right over a major dividing line. Uh, it was a it was a street, one of the major thoroughfares of of Indianapolis, between a pretty affluent neighborhood and a pretty poor neighborhood. And um, half of our parish boundaries covered that poor neighborhood as well. We had zero parishioners from that area. Now, mind you, most of the community were uh, African Americans, so 
few were Catholic, but you know, there's a presumption there that few were Catholic, and there were a good number of, of uh, Protestant churches there in the community as well. So, so providing uh, uh, for, for their sort of their church uh, uh, communities in, in, the, in the community itself. Um, we had a food pantry out of the parish that was pretty, you know, it was hustling and bustling. I mean, people came up, we got, gave away a lot of food, this and that. However, we had no lasting relationships with anyone south of 38th Street. Um, you know, you think about, you know, look around in your own parish. I mean, who makes up your parishes? Who are the people in the pews with you? Mostly, I would say, most parishes look pretty much the same. You know, they, they all, everyone who's attending looks the same socioeconomically, race, ethnicity, all of these sorts of things. Few parishes are, are truly diverse parishes where you have people of different backgrounds, different races and ethnicities and socioeconomic backgrounds, very few. And typically those are considered progressive parishes. Typically those are destination parishes, meaning that's where you go. It's not your parish boundary. It's where you go to church. You know, you drive 20 minutes to get there or whatever. Um, I think we need to consider how are we filling our pews? How are we reaching out to people not to just fill a quick need, but to build a relationship with the community? Um, the few times that I've seen that done well, the Episcopal churches, they do a great job of doing that. You know, if I'm, if I'm doing sort of a sort of a Catholic, highly sacramental, um, you know, liturgical tradition, the Episcopalians do a really good job of outreach to the poor to ensure that they are meeting them in the flesh. They know who they are. They're in a long-term relationship with these people um, because we're a part of the same community. We are the body of Christ. It's all of us together. Um, and I think the Catholic Church has a lot of work to do to ensure that, I mean, it's not to say the Catholic Church doesn't have a relationship with the poor. Globally, we have a very strong relationship with the poor. However, at least in the U.S. context, we have a lot of work to ensure that people who make up, you know, the Catholics who make up the Supreme Court and the presidency know the Catholics who come to the, to, the food, to, the, to the parish for the food pantry or for AA meetings or whatever, right? So um, we, ha we have some bridges to build there. Gotcha, that makes sense. So Zach, this has been um, great conversing with you, but I have bad news. We're coming to the end of our time, but I also have some good news. Um, we have some fire round questions for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so first one is, what person do you think lived out the values of Jesus best? dead or alive? I think it's a tie. I think it's either Dorothy Day or Bernie Sanders. Nice. Nice. Did you see that meme that's going around? Oh, uh, yeah. I love so it. So funny. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Do you have a favorite one? Um, I try, so I saw, uh, I saw him doing Gangnam Style, which was pretty funny. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I actually saw one of, you know, the, the image of Dorothy Day sitting in a chair with the, with the police officers. There's one where, where it's her and Bernie Sanders sitting side by side uh, in that same, uh, confronting the police at the protest. So that's hilarious. That's a pretty good one too. Oh my gosh. Okay. So um, right now, what would you say your uh, favorite method of prayer is? Um, I'm a Liturgy of the Hours guy. I, uh, I'm an oblate of uh, St. Minor Arch Abbey, which is a monastery in Southern Indiana. So I, I try to mirror the Benedictine spirituality in my own life as best I can. And I find a lot of comfort and solace and uh, peace in Liturgy of the Hours. Nice. Love it. All right. Now, if you were Pope for a day, what would you do? I would uh, encourage us to listen to the Spirit more closely. I think, um, I think we're hearing from members of marginalized communities in our church, women, the LGBTQ community, and others who are asking for 
greater inclusion in the church in some form or fashion. And I think we need to be open to the way the spirit is moving in those conversations. That's great. I love that. So final question, Zach, I got to warn you, this is the most, I tell everyone, this is the most, uh, uh, excuse me, controversial, the most theological, philosophical question of them all. Um, How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? You're going to have to ask Mr. Owl. (laughs) Nice. Okay. I love that. I'll go ask. uh, All right. Well, Zach, this has been fun. Uh, It's it's great to to catch up with you, to hear hear your wisdom and knowledge. Thanks so much taking the time and uh, for being here. Appreciate it. I appreciate the invitation. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. I hope I wasn't too long-winded for you. Nope, not at all. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care. Peace.